When we left our study of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, Dave Wordson was in the midst of showing us how the dad in Proverbs uses role-playing to teach his children about the sales pitch the criminal will use to attract him or her in a life of crime. What promises does the con man make? How can we help our kids see the deception? How can we do what needs to be done to make them listen? How should you respond when your teenager asks why? You see, our goal needs to be to explain why. Our goal needs to be able to say, well, this is the way life works. Now, how are we going to counteract the pull of the drug octopus? Number one, we need to say no. Just say no is a great slogan. But it needs to be more than just saying no. We need to explain why we just say no. So what the father does, the teenager throws up his hand and says, why, dad? He says, good, I was just waiting for you to answer that question. Let's go down and let's go out to eat, take you out to eat, let's sit down and have a good meal. I want to talk to you about why. And so dad puts his arm around his son and his daughter and says, let's go out and talk. And they sit down, they're having a meal. He says, I tell you what, I'm going to role play a little bit. I'm a drug pusher. You're right, what? Yeah, I'm a drug pusher. I'm going to be the drug pusher for a minute. Kid says, you dad, drug pusher? You don't know what drug pushers do. You're a goody, 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 goody person. You don't know about that life. I'm the wise one. I know what's really happening. You're an old conjurer. You don't know what's going on in the world. Dad says, yeah, I'm a drug pusher. Try me. I'll tell you what the drug pusher's going to do. Only in the ancient world, it was the bandit. The dad says, okay, son, daughter, I'm the bandit. And this is what the bandit says. Look at it. Verse 11, role play situation number one. If they say, if the criminal says, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive, just like the grave, and whole like those who go down to the pit. Now let me translate that into modern everyday language. He says, the criminal's going to come to you kids. The drug pusher pulls the same thing. You know what they say is, number one, you're going to be invincible. You know, all of us want to be invincible. When we're young and when we're old and when we're in between, one of the real pulls on all of our lives is we want to be invincible, that there's nothing more invincible than death. When death grabs your life, you don't say, no, wait just a minute, I forgot something, I lost my keys. When death goes to grab our life, God's the only one who's victor over that. From a physical standpoint, death is invincible. So the criminal says, listen, we're going to be as invincible as death. We'll never get caught. Clyde stood just about five foot three inches tall, five five if he wore shoes. Bonnie Parker did not push the scales past a hundred pounds. But behind a Browning automatic rifle, they stood seven feet tall. On February 19, 1934, guess where Bonnie and Clyde got their Browning automatic rifles? They didn't go down to the local gun shop and buy a Browning automatic rifle. No, they used your good tax money. They went to the Ranger Armory, broke into the armory, and stole their Browning automatic rifles care of the United States government. A week later, they were in Lancaster, Texas. You ever heard of that? Their sweethearts waited on the southwestern side of town in a getaway car. They ripped off the bank. 
They pulled $4,333 approximately out of the bank, which was a big haul for 1934. They sped through the streets of Lancaster, came around, switched cards to get rid of the incriminating license plates, and sped off to a distant city. And man, $4,000 in 1934 could buy you a lot of threads and a lot of fun in a distant city. In 1934, newsboys would just jump with glee when the headlines read, Bonnie and Clyde strike again. Man, it sold newspapers like hotcakes. They were invincible. The criminal will always tell you, if someone goes to bait you and get you involved in drugs, they'll always promise you young people this, you will never get caught. Teenagers, be honest with me. How many of you have ever done something wrong because you were promised you'll never get caught? You're invincible. It's impossible. Your mom and dad won't know. The, the principals at school won't know. The police won't know. You won't get caught. The truth of the matter is, some of you kids are involved in stuff right now that you have not gotten caught. And what I want you to do, I want you to listen to me very carefully. That is a seductive bait. It's a juicy worm that's being held out to you. The promise you won't get caught. The next promise is instant wealth. In other words, you're going to get easy money. You don't have to work for it. Who wants to work for money? Who wants to bag groceries? Who wants to wash cars? Who wants to go to a job? I mean, who wants to work during the summer vacation? Man, we can have easy money. Look what it says here in verse 13. We will get all sorts of valuable things. We'll fill our houses with plunder. We'll get all kinds of valuable things. Man, you get involved in our culture, man, you're going to make money like you would never imagine. All the way through the book of Proverbs, it warned us about get-rich-quick schemes. How many of you adults have ever been stung? How many of you older adults have ever been stung by the promise? It can't miss. It's an easy buck. You can make easy money. A lot of you, right? Proverbs says, watch out. Anytime anybody promises you, listen, you can get it the easy way. Instant wealth. Bonnie and Clyde got an instant $4,000, just like that, by stealing it. Who says crime doesn't pay? So the first baiting technique is we'll be invincible. The second baiting technique that the father exposes, that the criminal will promise you, is you're going to get instantly wealthy. But the third bait is the most seductive at all. Look what he says. Throw in your lot with us. Life is just like the throw of a, of a dice. And we will share a common purse. Now, that's the toughest one of all. That's the tough one. You know what that is? It's not invincibility. It's not instant wealth. But it's intimacy. It's companionship. It's the in-group, the peer group, being part of a group. You know, I realized when I was about 19 how powerful an in-group could be. At Word of Life Ranch, we had a real Casanova. There are three camps at Word of Life. There's a ranch for children where I was working. There's an island that's nine miles up the lake, and then there's an adult camp that's just across the lake. We had a fellow working on our staff named Dave, not this Dave, but another Dave, who had a girlfriend at the ranch. On his night out, he had three nights out during the week. On his night out at the ranch, he took this girl out. On his day off, he went up in the morning and spent half the morning with his girlfriend at the island. 
And then he would tell her that he needed to do his laundry. And so he would split his day off with his girlfriend at the island and his girlfriend at the inn. And some of us found out about it, and we thought that was really mean. Don't you girls agree? That was mean. And Dave's key to his success was his beautiful blonde hair. In those days, a Princeton haircut was really in, and he had the perfect Princeton haircut. He was one of those guys that when he went to bed at night, his hair was totally in place. And he would lie on his back, flat on his back, all night long, go putting his hand before he put his head down on his pillow to make sure that it was still flat. And when he woke up in the morning, it still looked the same. So one night, while he was sitting with his girlfriend, we went into the staff lounge, and we had a fellow that was the heavyweight champion wrestler of the state of Pennsylvania. If you know anything about wrestling in Pennsylvania, you can imagine what this guy looked like. We had the number one discus thrower for the state of Delaware, which is a very small state, but he was a honcho too. They grabbed Dave on the right arm, on the left arm, and they casually picked him up and took him down to the basement of this building where I was waiting to take a pair of shears and I stirred them in the back of his head and went right up over the front of it, all the way over his head, and we left just a beautiful blonde streak right down the middle of his head called the Mohegan haircut. Now, I made a fatal error at that point. A friend of mine says, hey, Dave, let me have the clippers for a minute. So I nonchalantly gave him the clippers and about 15 guys grabbed a hold of me, and I bit, and I kicked, and I scratched, and I slugged, and I did everything I could. But 10 minutes later, my hair was all over the floor, too. Now, at that point, something tragic happened. Suddenly, at Word of Life Ranch, the in thing became Mohegan haircut. Now, the next morning, we had flag raising. We were very patriotic, and we'd have flag raising every morning. And you would have 15 little kids in your cabin. And they were about 10 years old, so even I was a little bit taller than some of the 10-year-olds. And we would stand as counselors at the back of these lines. Now, at that time, madras hats were in. And we would wear them on our heads just like an upside-down sailor hat. But you can't wear a hat when you raise the flag. Fifteen guys took off their hat. There was no flag raising. Four hundred little kids went into hysterics. You say, Dave, I thought there was only two guys that got Mohegan haircuts. No. There were fifteen guys. It was like the plague. It just swept through. Almost all the guys ended up with Mohegan haircuts. And I learned the power of the in-group. Now, getting a Mohegan haircut is relatively innocent, except when you're trying to witness that in Lake George. And I told one kid who went right through the four spiritual laws, right through the whole plenty of salvation. I said, wouldn't you like to receive Christ as your Savior? And he looked at me and he got this real weird look in his face. He says, if I receive Christ as my Savior, do I have to get my hair cut like that? <laughs> but I found out the power of a peer group. And the power of the peer group is the most powerful influence when you get into the wrong peer group. How many of you have ever seen on TV or at the movies, you've seen the film Bonnie and Clyde? Back in the 60s, it won Academy Awards. It's been on TV. It was back when Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were young. And as you watched that flick, you had Bonnie and Clyde robbing one bank after another. They were like Robin Hood. They threw money out the windows of the cars to the poor people. 
uh, Bonnie made love to Warren Beatty and, uh, and supposedly Clyde in these very romantic motel settings. And how many of you, as you watched that flick, you started to have a change in your attitude and suddenly the police were the bad guys and Bonnie and Clyde were the good guys? Anybody have that happen? Yeah. That's because it was written like that. Bonnie and Clyde were the romantic, vagabond murderers. But their murdering wasn't really bad because they only murdered policemen and people like that. That was the idea. That's the way the movie came across. Very romantic. Bonnie would write love notes to her Clyde and they were going to live happily ever after. So that when they were shot at the end of the film, you really felt badly. In that film, the criminal promises invincibility. Bonnie and Clyde could not be beaten. Their Browning automatic rifles were invincible. They had instant wealth. They were able to rob banks at will. They could outrun anybody in their car. And thirdly, they had intimate companionship. They were the lovers. In other words, Bonnie, this little innocent girl, suddenly has an older guy. And you girls, watch out. Your self-image is low. Daddy really hasn't given you a hug since you were 12 years old. Because suddenly he started to get afraid of you for some reason that, he, that you don't really understand. Mom doesn't really have time for you. She's been angry with you from the time you were a kid. And you are thoroughly convinced as a little girl that you're an ugly duckling. Clyde comes along. He's about five or six years older than you. And he is dashing. He is handsome. He is unbelievable. And he tells you the most unbelievable thing of all. You are really special. He loves you. Who, me? And out of a low self-image, the girl gets seduced into a life that could end tragically. Stringtown is a town in southeast Oklahoma. And Friday night, it was one of those one-horse towns. You know, one of those towns you went whipping through. And it was not at all like Dallas where there was a million things to do. The only thing to do in this town on Friday night was to go to the dance. And that night, that Friday night at that dance, this girl in a flaming red dress was something special. Nothing like that had ever come to Stringtown, Oklahoma. It was just unbelievable. She had two companions with her that were dressed in the highfalutin city duds. And one of the local yokels tried to ask this girl in the flaming dress for a dance. Her two male companions just pushed them aside roughly. The moonshine whiskey was flowing freely. And when the dance ended, they walked out and left. Only one problem. They jumped in this young man's car, the young man that had been rebuffed. The young man went and got more and the other sheriff. And they thought it was just going to be a routine misunderstanding at a dance. E.C. Moore went up to the car and said, sir, what are you doing in this car? That question was met with a hell of machine gun fire, and E.C. Moore slumped over dead by the side of that car, and Sheriff Maxwell slumped critically wounded as well. And E.C. Moore's widow began to cry, and her little kids were left without a daddy. That was the real Bonnie and Clyde. Because the reality of crime is crime promises us invincibility, instant wealth. It promises us we'll never get caught. It promises us an in-group. But the reality, young people, is that crime is cruel. 
The father says in verse 15, My son, don't go along with them in their paths. Don't set foot in their lifestyle. Why? Because their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. He's saying that crime is cruel. Tommy was related to Bonnie. And I had Tommy come over to my living room one day, Tommy Hobson, and just sit down and say, Tommy, I want you to tell me about the real Bonnie and Clyde. And Bonnie and Tommy was saying he remembers when he was just a little tiny kid. He has a pretty good memory. It goes way back. And about in Crockett, Texas, there in the Crockett National Forest, he lived with his parent, with his grandfather, I believe it was. And he remembers sitting on his grandmother's lap, rocking back and forth on a Sunday afternoon. And a car came in, came up spanking new, and Clyde never left the running board, just stayed right by the car with the car running. And Bonnie came up to Tommy's grandfather and asked for, for provisions. And Tommy tells me he remembers, even as a little kid sitting in his grandmother's lap, he could feel her tensing up with fear. It was like electricity among the adults that were there. Because Bonnie's grandfather says, no, I won't give you provisions. And Bonnie's hair was all matted. She didn't look like Faye Dunaway. She wasn't barely over five foot tall. She was about 4'11". And she was dirty. And they were like scared rabbits on the run. And Tommy told me, he said, that there was not, an, uh, there, that nothing released in that moment of tension until Bonnie turned and walked away. And Tommy's grandfather would spit underneath his breath and say, that girl wouldn't bat an eye at machine gunning her own mother and father in the face and then stepping in the pool of their blood and walking over somebody else. Crime promises you that you're going to be invincible, but the reality is that criminals are cruel. The drug culture is cruel. Getting involved with those that turn away from the moral standards of God's word are cruel. Second of all, they're stupid. They're cunning, but they're stupid. Have you ever gone dove hunting? I went dove hunting one time with a bunch of guys, and we had some of our little guys with us. The dove would come up off the pool, and they would fly towards where they were going to roost for the night. And they would come flying right for us, right where we were getting ready to shoot. They didn't have to worry about me. I couldn't hit them anyway. But they would fly right over where we were. Then one of our kids would stand up and go, Here, Bernie, here we are, here we are. And the dove would go, you like this. Right over where Ed and Jerry were. Kaboom! You know, and another six doves would blow, be blown out of the sky. It's an amazing thing. If, you know, you, if birds know there's a trap, they'll deviate. In the ancient world, they didn't use 12 gauge or 20 gauge or any other gauges. They used nets. But what the writer is saying here in Proverbs is, that how useless it is, in verse 17, to spread a net in full view of all the birds. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. What Proverbs is saying is that the criminal is stupid because they think they're lying in ambush. They're lying hidden, going to get everyone else. But in reality, they're lying in ambush for themselves. Bonnie and Clyde waited in front of the Majestic Theater in Shreveport, Louisiana. Henry Methvin, their new partner, had just gone in to get a whole bunch of sandwiches and some soft drinks to get them down the road a little bit farther. A police car drove by, and Proverbs said that the wicked run when no one's pursuing. 
Bonnie and Clyde took off when the Shreveport policeman went by their car. The Shreveport policeman later said that he didn't even notice the couple until they split out. He started chasing them, started putting two and two together by the kind of the car, the way Clyde was driving. He knew it possibly could have been Clyde and, and Bonnie that they were in that area. And so he gave up the pursuit because they had enough firepower to blow them right off the road. He went back to the office. It just so happened that Bob Alcorn and Ted Hinton were there. For two years, they'd been bloodhounding Bonnie and Clyde's trail. They knew the habits of Bonnie and Clyde better than they knew their own family's habits. And they were in the office when this young sheriff came in, this young deputy came in and told them about this mysterious couple. They put two and two together. Old man Methvin lived about 50 miles from Shreveport. They figured that Clyde would try to get together with his partner, whom he left there in the cafe. Henry just left quickly out the back door. And so they knew they had the perfect stakeout. They went out the old road that went out to old man Methvin's place, got in a particular place on the road where they could command a half a mile in either direction. They waited. They waited for two days. At 4.15 a.m. on the second night out, they heard the cough of old man Methvin's truck. They walked out on the road and said, halt. They stopped the old man. They said, do you know where Clyde is? Do you know where Bonnie is? Have they tried to contact you? All they got met with was cussing, just cussing and tobacco juice. So they took old man Methvin and they took him back of their position about 50 yards and they, they handcuffed him to a tree. And then they came back to the road and they waited longer. They waited, they waited, they waited. 9.15 that morning, they saw the dust begin to fly way down the road. And Ted Hinton, who grew up with Clyde Barrels in West Texas, said, here he comes. He only drives one way with his foot flat on the floor. They came down the road and when they got closer, they had taken, the deputies had taken old man Methvin's truck, turned it around the road, blocked the road a little bit, Put, took a tire off and left the tire there. They were going to make Clyde stop. They'd done this a couple times before, and he just blasted right on through him. But this time he was going to slow, and there was going to be no way out. When Clyde came up to old man Methvin's truck, he had to stop. He had to slow down. As soon as he stopped, Bob Alcorn stood up and said, Halt in the name of the law, and they opened fire. Clyde grabbed for his automatic rifle, but it's just a hell of gunfire splintered the muzzle of his, of his automatic rifle. Went for his pistol, blew his pistol apart, and armor-jacketed, armor-penetrating shells riddled their bodies. Bonnie grabbed for her pistol, blew her hand right off. You know the gruesome story. I think Clyde had 56 bullet holes that were counted in him. Bonnie had over 50. Crowds went by their by their through the funeral home out of a gross, gross sense of curiosity. I want to read you what Bonnie wrote just a few weeks before she died. Crime is cruel, it's stupid, it's self-destructive. They don't think they're too tough or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore the death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together and they'll bury them side by side. To few it will be grief, to the law relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. The book of Proverbs had parents that knew reality. They said that crime doesn't pay in the 10th century B.C. 
Crime doesn't pay from the life of Bonnie and Clyde in the 1930s. But some of you teenagers are saying to me, Dave, it's not like that today. I was giving this message up at Word of Life several years ago, and a lady came up to me when I was all finished. I was collecting some overheads together. And this lady came up to me and says, Dave, can I tell you something? And I could tell from the way she was approaching me that it was going to be a really heavy one. She said, Dave, in hearing you talk today, I want you to know that Proverbs is still right. You see, my teenage son, we moved to a new town. I'd just recently been divorced. We moved to a new town. And my teenage son in this new town started hanging around with this kid. And I could tell when he was over to our house that he really wasn't with it completely. His eyes were a little bit glassy. It was pretty obvious he was on drugs. And so I tried to tell my son, I said, son, don't walk in the way with this guy. You shouldn't really hang around with him. My son came back with that standard line, someone has to be their friends. Someone needs to try to reach him. And so as a, a, a mother that was all alone, I didn't know what to do. So I just let him keep meeting with this friend. And he started to spend more and more time with his friend and less and less time with me. And she said, now, now I have no time with my son. Because a few months ago, my son was over at his friend's house and his friend was high on drugs and he grabbed a pistol and he killed my son. Crime doesn't pay in the 10th century. It doesn't pay in the 30s and it doesn't pay now. How do we teach our children just to say no? Young people, you can look at me and say, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. You have every right to say that. You can say, well, you're old and you don't really know what's going on. You have every right to say that. That's fine. But it really isn't fine. I promise you, young people, I told you the truth today. I promise you that I did. To the best of my ability, I tried to lay out to you what a criminal lifestyle really can do. When I was your age, I thought a lot of those stories were exaggerations. I thought it would never happen to me. But by the grace of God, I did listen to an adult who said, don't listen to a seductive, baiting criminal who says you're going to be invincible, you're going to get easy money, and you're going to have an intimate group. And I listened to someone who told me that it was cruel, someone who told me that it was stupid, someone that told me that it was self-defeating, self-destructive. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. But how do we say no? The first step to learning how to say no is listen to the reality of the life of crime. But young people and mom and dad, I want to tell you something. You know that you can know you can know the reality of a life of crime. You can know that it's cruel. You can know that it's stupid. You can know that it's self-destructive. And you'll still go ahead and do it. Because there's a self-destruct principle in every single one of us. You see, we can know that it's going to kill us. But if it gets us high, if it gets us exhilarated, that's all that counts. Just that one moment of total pleasure, that's all that we want. You know why we have that self-destructive principle in us? Because we're sinners. You know that God loves sinners, criminals. See, the truth of the matter is not all of us are Bonnie and Clyde. But death is the wages of sin. Every one of us 
have the wages of sin in our life. I can tell you that the way to say no is to know the reality of what sin can do. And that's what the school's going to tell you, and that's good. You need to know the reality of a life of crime. But you know, the tragedy is that if we just stop there, it's like telling somebody, if you take this, it's going to kill you, and yet they don't have the power to resist it. And that's where Jesus comes in, young people and moms and dads. Jesus wants to come and live in every one of your lives. Moms and dads, he wants to come to live in your life. He is the only one that can give you the power just to say no.